Today, I'm speaking with one of my favorite money managers, Danielle Park. Now, in a world full of hyperbole and sensational headlines, I rely on Danielle for her moderate and realistic approach to money management. And today, we're talking about a return to sanity when it comes to capital allocation. And I hope she's right. Here's my conversation with Danielle Park. Enjoy. Danielle. Hey, how are you? I'm really good. Nice yeah. to see you. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, my pleasure. So um, there's a handful of things that I want to talk to you about today. I felt like the best place we could start would be the Fed rates because the most frequent headline that I've been seeing on my side has been investors expecting a pivot mm -hmm. and when that pivot occurs, how the speculative equity game is going to be game on again, mm -hmm. right? And those investors are starting to feel validated because now the Fed rates are beginning to slow. So the setup looks like for that pool of investors and that pool of media pundits, et cetera, they're getting prepped to jump into the game, how it's been played from the previous decade. Now, give me your thoughts on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that the, uh, the, the speculative fervor has been so encouraged because every time there's been a pullback or a downturn in the markets in the last decade, you've seen uh, liquidity come rushing to the, to the rescue, primarily quantitative easing, I mm. think, much more than rates. Rates move in a much slower cycle. Mm. Quantitative easing is like the adrenaline hit, right? It comes into financial markets directly. So it really has had a more abrupt turnaround impact in terms of pricing. Um, but right now, if you think about it, the Fed is still doing quantitative tapering, right? right. So we're doing the $95 billion tapering, removing of capital from financial markets monthly. Mm -hmm. And the, 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 I think that's a primary difference this time. Um, also, you know, in past cycles, whenever they've announced that they're going to pause, it is very uh, typical for financial markets to race off and sort of anticipate, oh, yeah. great, the worst of it is behind us in terms of the hiking. Yeah. But in, in reality, that's a knee-jerk response. It's not rational mm -hmm. because, as we know, the, the um, impact of monetary tightening or loosening does not turn on a dime. Mm -hmm. It actually works through the economy at a 12 to 24-month lag. Right. So the fastest hiking cycle we've seen in decades that happened in 2022, you know, uh, 0.75 increases repeatedly yeah. meeting after meeting. That is just this really unprecedented in our experience of the, of the current market participants, something like that we haven't seen since the 80s, the early 80s. So mm. no one really has precedent or experience for this kind of thing. So I think they think, oh, awesome, we're going to get a quick rebound here. And to some extent, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And we have set, seen yeah. the piling in and you get the biggest rebound in January that we've seen in, in significant period of time. But I've been around a while now and seen a few of these cycles. And what ultimately happens, and if you look back, you can actually verify this in the, in the charts and price data, but ultimately what happens is the revelation hits after the initial euphoria that, oh boy, um, the tightening is barely in the economy yet, first of all. Okay. Because, you know, again, many, many debts are floating rate, which were impacted in 2022. But a lot of stuff is fixed term, which doesn't come up for renewal until 2023, 2024, right? Right. And so that's why the impact of the tightening isn't instantly felt for everyone. It mm -hmm. comes in tranches. And I think we're going to continue to feel that through 23. And most importantly, it impacts the earnings cycle. Mm. 
right? So we've had this sort of knee-jerk, as I said, big sell-off in 2022 on the rate shock, which makes some sense. Yeah. Then you have a euphoric rebound on, oh, great, they're going to stop tightening soon, we think, because mm. the economic data is getting bad. You know, so bad news is good news yeah. as far as the financial markets yeah. go. But then what happens is they start to see that earnings are coming off. And it's typical going into a downturn or a recession to see earnings come off 25%, 20%. Right now, the analyst community is still forecasting earnings growth in 2023, right? So that, that's why hmm. prices of stocks right now are back to uh, very high valuations. Yeah. Um, and the people justifying them will say, well, if we get you know, earnings growth of 6% in 2023, then you've got a PE multiple forward looking on the S&P of something like 17. And you know, it's not that bad. But what if we get an earnings growth more in line with the contractionary phase, which right. would be you know, negative 20%. So instead of an S&P earnings of 20, uh, $220 a share, you might get something like $187 a share. Which you feel is more likely. Well, it's just historically appropriate that you see that okay. kind of a contraction. And don't forget, we're coming off record high earnings. So yeah. this particular cycle, back to mm -hmm. the QEs and liquidity pumping and the ultra low rates of a decade, it really engorged corporate profits <clears throat> to an extent that's rarely seen. And so I think that's the fundamental mistake people make is they forget that's the most mean reverting sequence in finance right. and that those earnings don't go to the moon. They have to be in line with the credit cycle, the consumption cycle, and ultimately they turn back down as all those things, the monetary impulse comes in and that sort of thing. So mm -hmm. I think that we're going to see a disappointment on the earnings front in the next year or so. And I don't think stocks are appropriately priced for that. And I feel like a lot of investors are setting up to become trapped in that, right? Because it's a rational thought to think that if there's, if you're just focusing on rates, as you said, there's, you know, there's more to look at. But a lot of investors just look at rates, right? Just that far. And if rate increases are starting to slow, maybe point towards a pause, and your experience in the markets is just the last decade or even two, right? then it's rational to assume that the game would go sort of back on, right? Mm. Um, and it's hard to get out of that hindsight bias. It's like, it's, it's a quite, quite a rational expectation to think that tomorrow's gonna be like the last 10 years have been, right? But even that is what I'm trying to explain there is that it's not actually the way it's been for the last 10 years in the sense that, mm. yes, quantitative easing has that quicker hit to financial markets, but the rate cutting and rate hiking cycle mm. has always taken many months to filter through. Yeah. So it's really a misunderstanding of historical precedent and an unrealistic expectation yeah. of what happens in these cycles. And the, and by the way, the median pause from the median time from the pause to the first cut is typically about 4.7 months or about five months, yeah. right? So just because they may or may not be coming to a pause, which you know the Bank of Canada, I think, is probably gonna stay where they are right now. They paused last week. You know, Fundamental conditions in Canada are starting to unravel significantly. Mm -hmm. I think that the mm -hmm. Fed may indeed surprise with even a couple more hikes here for the very um, reason that financial markets have got ahead of themselves again. So yeah. this euphoric rally in uh, financial assets has actually loosened financial conditions about the equivalent of 130 basis points. So here's the Fed 
right? Trying to walk the talk and quelch the impulse and inflationary expectations, which politically they have been very much under pressure to do, right? So they're trying to do this. They've done, they had the political cover to hike rates three times faster than normal from zero to 25 to 4.75 in less than a year, mm -hmm. right? So that's what they're doing here. And they, they're using the political cover of inflation to have an excuse to get rates back into that range, which they've succeeded in doing. But imagine how you would feel if you're trying to show the markets who's boss. And at the same time, they're not buying what you're saying. And they, sell, they, they, they cause financial assets to rally so much, anticipating that you're going to pause and not be tough on inflation. Yeah. And then that in, is actually undoing the tightening effort, reflating the inflationary impulse. Right. So I think in some ways that the, the markets are really just uh, setting up for another round of disappointment, even in the sense that the central banks, especially the U.S. Fed, is likely to say, no, actually, we're not going to pause here. Actually, we're going to hike more. We might go a, f a 50 beep next time. Right. We might go again in March. And then, by the way, guys, when we finish hiking, we're still going to do QT. Mm-hmm quantitative tapering, mm -hmm. and we're still going to sit there for many months. We're yeah. not going to start cutting rates. Yes. And that's why I'm pretty sure that the, the disappointment's going to persist for a considerable amount of time in terms of contracting liquidity. You know, the money that's flowing through the banking system is contracting at the sharpest rate we've ever seen in history. That means real loans to the real economy, Yeah. right? Negative. Yeah. Um, so I think that there's quite a lot of things here that people are not maybe prepared for, that don't have the experience or the secular picture, you know, to understand how these things move. And they just think this is a quick hit of adrenaline again. And yeah, you know, totally. And I, I want to dig into that a little bit because so much of that, from my standpoint, is investor psychology, right? Mm -hmm. And markets and investing has gone mainstream to the point of pop culture, right? Uh, meme stocks, charlatan CEOs, going all in, diamond hands, holding on for dear life, all of this stuff, right? <laughs> it's, 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 it's pop culture's version of finance, which can be really dangerous because it just creates a herd mentality. Mm -hmm. I mean, by nature, right? Mm -hmm. um, it creates the FOMO experience of why you should buy something, which mm -hmm. is a horrible reason to buy anything, let alone an equity, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'd love you to spend a minute addressing that. Mm -hmm. You know, what is, what should the psychology of an investor be? You know, how should they identify in terms of allocating capital, right? Maybe getting to the core of the question, why? Like, why am I making this decision? Mm -hmm. Because if you look at market activity, I guess from my perspective, recently, the last few years, it's mainly been swing traders mm -hmm. who are trading share prices, but identifying as investors which is something totally different. And often not even looking at the asset at all, right? Just look, looking at the market and the share price and the trading activity, and they believe they're investing, but they don't know a thing about the asset underlying the share price. And there's a huge decoupling there mm -hmm. that may become recoupled, if that's a word, right? Mm -hmm. And it takes, uh, it takes a beating for that to happen. Sometimes you have to go through a hard time to smarten up, mm -hmm. right? But I'd love you to just share some comments on that <coughs> investor psychology and what do you think? Well, it's, Again, back to experience, it's so reminiscent to me of the tech top in 2000. Interesting. Very reminiscent um, because I remember it so well. It was my first cycle. You know, I came into the financial management business in 1997. 
uh, like a deer mm. to the headlights, really. Didn't have a clue okay. about the big picture cycle, knew that everything was going up more than historically normal. And in that blow off period from 99 to uh, 2000, the NASDAQ doubled in value, Jay, <laughs> in one year. Right. We're talking, wow. Everybody bonkers. felt real smart. Oh, yeah. everyone was a genius. Borrowing yeah. against their homes to buy more stocks or yeah. borrowing against margin accounts to consume things and buy things in their life. And, mm. you know, so this leverage on leverage thing um, with no, no concept of fundamental supports, no concept of risk assessment, none of that. Just buy it because it'll go up was the idea. And of course, it always... Um, completes in a spectacular debacle, yeah. which it in fact did. And I remember very well as well that uh, when things began to turn over in 2000, you know, the Fed started cutting rates when we went into the downturn. Um, but indeed, that didn't have much of, effect, of an impact other than the odd reflex rally of behavior going, oh, good, now maybe that's the worst of it. And it just kept grinding down. So bear market rally, next lower low. Bear market rally, next lower low. Mm. And it went on for over two years, Jay. So this is a good old-fashioned mm. bear market. It goes on like that to the point that the highly levered run screaming from the building. But they don't right. do it until they're forced okay. by, you know, just no other cash available, no other credit available. Um, so that's, in fact, what happened. Um, and I see that now people are saying, well, 2022 was a negative year. The S&P was off about 20%. The NASDAQ was off about 33 mm. uh, And they're thinking, okay, good. That means stocks must rally this year. But actually in the recessionary part of these cycles, when you come into it highly levered with the FOMO and all the mania activity like, yeah. you, like we had exactly this cycle, it is mm. more likely that you get an extended bear market of more than a year typically a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And in that period, you continually, as I say, rally to lower lows, rally to lower lows. Yeah. And it is that crushing experience that finally ends that uh, ability to speculate and the appetite to speculate. And then you get mm. a mass kind of depression, which is ultimately awesome for setting up the next fundamentally supported recovery in financial markets, where mm. yields have typically doubled or tripled from yep. what you could get at the peak, yep. uh, you know, where speculators have been taken out on stretchers, and where mm. people with cash get these opportunities of a lifetime, really. I want you to, to share your thoughts on leverage a little bit, because you discussed that, and back in 97, 98, you were seeing, as we're seeing today, I suppose, leverage on leverage. And there's a time and a place uh, to utilize leverage. There's important utility there if used intelligently. Um, but often it isn't. So what, what are your thoughts, Danielle? Is that where investors today you feel are most exposed and should escape from as soon as possible? Sure. Well, the biggest leverage in the world is on the real estate market, right? It's the biggest market in the world, isn't it? Absolutely. Bigger than the stock market, bigger than the stock and bond market. It mm -hmm. is enormous and it is the most highly levered asset in the world. Right. So that's the first thing. 66% uh, of the population in Canada owns some real estate, yeah. but only about 25% own it fully paid for, as okay. an example. And you mentioned yesterday that's down 10% yeah, from when? that's gone the wrong way in the past few years. Okay. Um, because I think a lot of um, people that had homes were either, well, I know this to be the case because I saw all kinds of anecdotal evidence of this uh, and just uh, some technical uh, evidence of this, but they were boring against real estate to buy other real estate, but yeah. also to buy consumption items, mm. but also to loan to their kids and their grandkids mm -hmm. so they could get in the property market. I see. Right. Yeah. So that was a very self-fulfilling fuel on the way up. And when the money's that cheap, you know, you yeah. can get inside the mind and understand it. Absolutely. Right? And, and 
central uh, bankers played a role for sure. So did the government because they didn't caution people that low rates can't last forever. Indeed, they sort of said the opposite. They kind of hinted, yes. They kind of said rates won't be going up for at least another year or two, right? And then lo and behold, sucker punched them with the the fastest hiking cycle in 30 years. Mm. So, you know, there's all kinds of blame to go wrong here, but ultimately it's the individual that has to equip themselves with the personal discipline and the understanding. So so the the leverage from the real estate market spilt over into consumption in the economy, but also into um, borrowing money to buy these different financial assets. You know, people Mm. actually were borrowing against all kinds of things. Just, you know, I always think, you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul, but ultimately it's the, it's the stuff of Ponzi schemes, Mm. but writ large, right? Now in the mix, what makes it more dangerous in my view is that there's these ma and pa investors, pension funds, Mm -hmm. regular people with their life savings, right? participating in these same, these same capital flows. Now, they're not day trading. They think they're investing. Mm-hmm. But what happens when the wave comes in? It inflates all boats together, mm-hmm. right? So they, were, they thought they were making good returns in that environment because everything really was climbing really quickly. But in the, in the mean reversion phase, the opposite is also true, right? Mm. So you think you're a, a long-term investor, but I mean, the, the NASDAQ just gave us the third technical sell signal that it has since 2000, when it um, registered this secular top in 2000. It plunged, you know, 83% after that. Mm -hmm. It rallied back into the recovery into 2007, uh, then plunged another 55%. Uh, Took 15 years to recover the 2000 top. And we just in 2021 got a third confirmation of a secular top in the, mm. in the NASDAQ. So if you think about what I was saying earlier, the rollover happened, the 33% down, that encourages people, anyone that's got cash left or ability to borrow more, to think, oh, great, I must be getting a good deal here. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. But that's because they're looking so close at it rather than pulling back to the secular trend yes. and go, wow, at this point, we are more likely to see something greater than 50% in terms of a downturn or a cor- correction. And once that happens, that will spill over into all kinds of markets. It yeah. is very contagious. Mm. And it's not going to be, you know, it doesn't d- draw lines at, you know, defensive stocks. All stocks get up in this type of a wave environment and yeah. and and they suffer when the liquidity is coming back out. And that's what's happening right now. And it's so dangerous because buying those dips given, you know, I guess recent history is very seductive. And mm-hmm. I know way too many people that have piled in and they feel like they're maybe being a bit of a contrarian, therefore smart. Then they catch the bear market rally and they feel smarter and their yeah. conviction is reinforced, yeah. right? And then wiped out even harder. Sure. Um, now, you mentioned, um, well, we talked about it's not unforeseeable that people would borrow and borrow and borrow when the money's so cheap. And you could maybe, I, you know, I agree with you. It's up to the investor to hold themselves accountable. In one sense, you could say people were just drinking the alcohol the Fed was pouring, you know, and why would you not remortgage your house at, you know, 1% to buy another? I get it. I get it. But what you pulled back to is the importance of personal sovereignty and taking control of your your decision-making and therefore direction in life, which gets me back to the herd mentality that's taken over so much of market activity that is so dangerous Mm -hmm. because it creates so many blind spots and confirmation bias. And we've seen that in abundance. 
I really like that you hammered that point. And if I, if I have any message that I want to communicate with my platform, it's, it's that. It's that nobody's got your back. But it turns out that's not a bad thing. It's good because it puts you in the driver's seat, puts you in control. And as soon as you, you point, even if you're drinking the Kool-Aid that the Fed poured and you say, oh, it's their fault, you're putting somebody else in control yeah. and therefore taking your hands off the wheel right, in the direction of your life. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, the good thing about it is, I mean, I've always said that human life is full of risk every day in every way. Mm. And I say that to remind us all that we have no clue, really, yeah, about yeah. what could come for us next, right. both good and bad, right. right? So the way that I manage that risk or is to try and have as much stability as I can, both in my personal life, in my personal finances, in my company, in the portfolios we manage for, for our clients. Mm. And that means that you basically have to be aware of these cycles, be aware that the herd is typically moving in the wrong direction. And you have to decide that you're going to basically drive by your own set of rules yeah. and have your own rules and testing of whether or not you're going to buy or sell something. Yeah. Uh, your own limits on what kind of concentration you're going to have in a particular bet. Yep. Um, your own idea about what diversification looks like. Sure. So all those things really are part of this risk management that's essential mm. for longevity, right? So that's we're not it. talking about yeah. this, you know, how did you do in the frothiest blow off top of, in human history of mm. asset bubbles? Yeah, great. Hopefully you made some on the upside. The question is how much did you keep? Yes. Because it is a bubble. So when it bursts, you know, who's got what left? That's and right. who's got the liquidity and cash and the discipline? And the idea of what to buy, that takes a lot of personal thought and work ahead of time. Mm. Um, and unfortunately, most people don't do it that way, right? They don't appreciate, for example, that risk goes up with price, not the other way around, right? Yeah. So when price is down yeah. a lot, most people are, oh, well, I don't want anything to do with that. That's yeah. scary. In theory, it's been, do you risk 30% if right? you drop 30%? And you're, if you know anything about probabilities, you know that if something's come off that much, your odds are probably better, not worse. Yeah. Right. But that's just counterintuitive to the way the human brain typically thinks. Of course. And yeah. I also talk about, you know, the the risk. A lot of times people will say, well, um, you know, I, I like to play in markets or I like to trade in markets. And I always say, okay, decide how much of your money you want to do that with. Mm -hmm. Pair it off separate from your life savings, yeah. right? Mm. And go ahead. But realize, for example, that the latest AI bot, did you catch that in the news recently? The AI know. chat bot that, that they've just Chat GPT? Yeah. Yeah, okay. They asked them to pick a portfolio of stocks that would outperform the index or the market over yeah. a, a longer period of time. And the answer was, uh, I won't because I can't. It's not possible. <laughs> <laughs> so he had a, a truth chip. That, I love that. <laughs> yeah, I know. So I thought that was pretty cute. Yeah. Um, so the other thing is it can be like a gateway drug. I call it a gateway drug on purpose. In the it. sense, it's a slippery slope, right? Yeah. So if you start trading, um, you may have success. And then you typically will start to think you're really I'm smart really good at this. and yeah. you may not pay attention to the cycle yeah. and you may start pouring more of your capital in and mm -hmm. God forbid, start borrowing money to do more of it. Yep. And that type of thing typically ends in a complete train wreck. So, <laughs> you know, the thing is, what are you, what is your, what is your game plan? What is your long-term goal? Yes. For me, it was always to get some financial stability and strength so that I could be resilient against whatever happens to come our way. Yeah. I love that. It's a long, patient game, right? And frequently the market is looked at as a get-rich-quick scheme. 
if you take that approach, it's far more frequently a go broke fast scheme, but it can be a get rich slow scheme if you put the work in. Absolutely. Right. I love that. Okay. The last thing I wanted to get your thoughts on something I'm trying to understand myself, you know, your expectations for called the pension market, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe as it relates to demographics and how mm -hmm. we're shifting to a heavier weighting on an aging population. Mm -hmm. I see that as a larger pool of people drawing on the pension and a smaller pool of people paying into it. Right. So we have this inverse pyramid forming mm -hmm. and it concerns me mm -hmm. um, in addition to some of the issues that you discussed. So what are your thoughts, Canadian American pension funds right now? Are you concerned at all? Yeah. And um, uh, same thing really applies to individual pensions, whether that's their whatever way, whatever type of account they save yeah. their money. in. Um, yeah, I'm worried because the decade of low rates really um, prodded uh pensions and individuals to do things that they would never have thought reasonable in the past. Okay. So because mm. yields were so low, they went and signed up with all these sort of speculative approaches or levered bets or PE firms who were sort yeah. of, you know, saying, give us two and 20 and we'll make uh, gold out of, out of, you know, mud, yeah. <laughs> so to speak. Don't <laughs> worry that yields are so low, we can fix that. Yeah, yeah. And ultimately that rarely works too. Now, mm. the good news is, that rates have come up so significantly that people can literally get cash rates above 4% again. Sure. And ultimately, that is a healthy impulse because it will attract capital back towards the miracle of compound uh, returns. And compound it seems interest. to be a little bit, right? Right. Yeah. So right now, people can buy the safer, higher uh, security stuff and still get a decent yield. And it's mm. that compound return over time that actually drives the bulk of uh, gains in a portfolio, which most people don't understand. Right. If there's no income coming off something or very low income and nothing's getting reinvested, mm. you're going to have much less prospect of returns over time. Yeah. So um, I guess the the upside is that yields are higher and, and there's more a chance to buy things that make sense. I think that will get even more so uh, as this contraction plays out in full and the opportunities there will be great. But I do share your concern about the demographic problem because mm. people get to a certain age, again, individuals or in pensions, and they start needing to consume or withdraw yeah. Um, payments. That yeah. makes sense. They saved all their lives. What's the point of it, right? Yeah. So that you can uh, stop working so much or uh, and start to have some drawdown on your savings. So I do think that the demographics are not in favor. The answer is to save more and consume less. Yep. It's not a popular uh, response. Most people don't like it, but no. that's the answer. You know, you, <laughs> you pull on this uh, analogy I heard from Morgan Housel that your savings rate is the gap between your income and your ego. And you just got to look critically at that, that. at that spacing, right? I love it. And uh, for some people, the ego is way bigger. And that's why we have credit cards. And for others, you know, if you're able to temper that, right, it's just you got to toggle it. And easier for some than others, but yeah. but uh, it's always possible. So, you know, I wanted to ask about the pension issue because we just talked about personal sovereignty and taking control, which I feel like relates to that. Mm -hmm. Do you think if you were to fast forward 20 years down the road, do you expect that we'll still even have a pension system? And I, I guess I ask because if we really zoom out, even the concept of retirement is kind of new, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And, and funded retirement's even newer. So in that sense, it's still a relatively recent experiment. Mm -hmm. We don't think of it that way because you know I'm in my 30s, it's always existed, so it's an expectation. Any expectation is dangerous, especially if it's somebody else controlling your money or your future finance mm -hmm. and livelihood. Mm -hmm. what, do you, what do you think about that? I think that the notion of a pension is an excellent one. Mm -hmm. And if it's managed properly, again, with sufficient 
contributions and increasing contributions were needed um, to make sure that you hit the targets that of the payouts that you've made the promises on. I think it's an excellent thing for us to strive for as mm. a society because there is um, it's difficult for individuals um, to manage all the risk and do all the things they should. And I think that pensions can be a good solution to that, but it matters very much how they're managed and what the expectations are. And in the last 20 years, actually, even since 2000, we've seen uh, a lot of uh, bad choices being made. I think that at the end of a secular uh, period like that, typically 20 years of that begets 20 years of a fundamentally different approach mm -hmm. and thinking. And I think that the, well, I guess I hope that we don't go back to zero rates again in this downturn, that okay. central banks may have learned something about that being a disastrous approach, yeah. right? Not only does it give away all their power in terms of ability to influence consumption once they're at zero and to revitalize economies when they need to try and get them <clears throat> out of recession, when they're at zero, they have no opportunity for that. But it also begets this horrendously self-destructive financial thinking and habits and speculative behaviors and, you know, the same thing that's happened in pensions and everywhere. Yeah. So I'm kind of hoping that that, that this, uh, this bear market, this end to this mania mm. um, teaches that these approaches are not actually productive or helpful in the longer run yeah. and that we go back to how we were typically managing pensions. Now, mm. again, I think later, uh, later retirement dates are probably an excellent thing. Mm. I think that given that we used to retire yeah. at 65 and be dead by 70, yeah, reality exactly. is people are, you know, maybe living to late 80s and 90s. And still productive in their 70s. Right? Yeah. So I think that I'm all for looking at the math equation and deciding what age, you know, are we going to say people should start withdrawing some income mm. and then keeping it very real in terms of what can be afforded in terms of contributions and a reasonable rate of return compounded. Um, again, pensions have this, the, the privilege or the luxury of an indefinite time frame, right? Which an individual does not. That's right. Right? So, so in, in theory, a pension has a greater risk exposure and tolerance and also because the individual okay. can't turn around at the wrong time and demand a lump sum or sell everything in a panic. That's right. right. So pensions, okay. right? As they, a vehicle, they make a lot of sense. As a vehicle, I'm all for them. Yeah. But it very much depends on the way that they're managed and the people that are managing it mm. and the expectations of what can be pulled out and what has to be put in. And that's just math. That's the good news. It's math. It can be figured out. Mm -hmm. But we have to get through this period where people are thinking they can have magic miracles, you know, put in nothing and grow it by, yeah. you know, ridiculous amounts. And I think that this, this downturn hopefully has the power to expunge that behavior and that thinking for a while. And hopefully, as you say, restart this focus on, you know, spending less than you make, saving regularly, don't take on crazy leverage, mm. uh, less consumption. You know, uh, ultimately, I think that's where health and happiness lies. I love that. Danielle, thanks so much for sitting down with me today. This has been super fun. I appreciate it. Well, you're great and I appreciate it. Thank you. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.